I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we discuss one of the most hotly contested questions in constitutional law, and that is the Constitution and reproduction. We will discuss a major case heard by the Supreme Court this week uh, about abortion. It's called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, the case is the first major abortion case the court has heard uh, since uh, the passing last month of Justice Antonin Scalia and one of the uh, most important cases in the past few years. Uh, in Whole Woman's Health, uh, the question is whether Texas House Bill 2, which passed in 2013, is consistent with the Constitution as interpreted in cases uh, such as Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Uh, the, the Texas bill regulated abortion clinics and doctors, and two provisions of the laws were challenged, and those appeals are before the Supreme Court. Joining us to discuss uh, this very important case are two of the leading scholars and experts in America on the question of the Constitution and uh, reproduction. Clark Forsyth is currently senior counsel for Americans United for Life and author of Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe v. Wade, uh, which was published by Encounter Books. And Mary Ziegler is Stern's Weaver Miller Professor at the Florida State University College of Law. Her latest book, After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate, is available from Harvard University Press. Clark, Mary, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. Well, uh, Clark, let me uh, start with you. The central question in this case is whether or not the Texas restrictions are consistent with the so-called undue burden standard set down in the Casey case. Uh, that's the case where the Supreme Court said that uh, abortion restrictions violate the Constitution if they impose an undue burden on women's ability to choose abortion before fetal viability. Clark, how do you uh, first describe the undue burden test as you understand it for our listeners? And uh, do you believe that the undue burden test requires the court to examine whether health justified regulations actively and effectively serve health-related ends, as some lower courts have held, or should the court be deferential to the state's stated purposes and simply determine if the law is an undue burden in restricting access? Well, Casey was also uh, significantly applied in 2007 in the Supreme Court's decision in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which ostensibly involved the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, which the court upheld 5-4, but also, in the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy, uh, elaborated on Casey and extended Casey, and I think reflects um, more of Justice Kennedy's view of what Casey meant than the Stenberg decision of 2000, which Gonzalez uh, overruled sub silencio. Uh, the, un uh, the court has said undue burden means substantial obstacle, but um, that is itself confusing because when you think of an undue burden, you think of some weighing what is undue whereas substantial obstacle just focuses upon the extent or weight uh, or size of the obstacle um, and doesn't really suggest a weighing of the benefits and burdens. Uh, so uh, the, I mean, ever since uh, Gonzalez versus Carhartt, uh, the, just the lower court judges, uh, lower courts have been confused about what is an undue burden, the court in uh, after Casey then applied a large fraction test uh, 
which produced confusion between 1993 or 4 and 2007. Gonzalez seemed to jettison the, uh, the large fraction test. So uh, I, I guess we're stuck with uh, uh, a confusion between what's an undue burden and what's a substantial obstacle. And, and that was uh, kind of summarized by Chief Justice Roberts yesterday when he said that, that the test is an undue, or he assumed the test was an undue burden or a substantial obstacle. Um, the second part of your question is uh, that if Justice Kennedy scrupulously applies his majority opinion in Gonzales, the, they should, he should, uphold the Texas regulations because uh, the majority opinion in Gonzales clarified how the under-burden test should be applied. Uh, it, uh, facial challenges should be discouraged. Uh, the states have a wide discretion to pass legislation in a context of medical disagreement or medical uncertainty. So that would weigh in favor of discretion toward the states. Uh, thank you so much for that. Mary, your thoughts about, first of all, what exactly the undue burden standard in Casey requires? The court was struggling with it yesterday. Does it require judges to uh, balance uh, the state's interest against the burdens imposed by the law, or does it simply require the uh, courts to determine whether or not a substantial number of women are denied access to abortion? Uh, your thoughts broadly on how the test should be applied. Well, I think Clark is right that things have been a little muddled. Um, the, the argument, I think, that there some kind of balancing is required derives from Casey itself, um, and Casey centered in a significant way on the fact that there are important interests on either side of the abortion question. Uh, Casey overruled Roe in part, um, jettisoned the trimester framework, because Roe had undervalued the state's interest in fetal life. But Casey declined to overrule the part of Roe saying that women had a fundamental right to make decisions about abortion, because that right still carried significant constitutional weight. Uh, and so I think there's a concern that if, in effect, the state can just proclaim a health interest without any evidence that women's health is actually protected, that that would undermine the kind of careful balance that the Casey court struck, particularly uh, in, including Justice Kennedy, who obviously was a central part of that decision. Um, and I, I don't think Carhartt is inconsistent with that argument. The court in Carhartt was very careful to lay out several purposes underlying the Partial Birth Abortion Act, including interest in protecting women from what the court saw as likely regret if they didn't understand the consequences of abortion decisions, uh, the, the coarsening of society by a particular abortion procedure. So I, I don't think it's necessarily clear that the court in Carhartt didn't require some kind of relationship between the means and ends of the law. Rather, the court in that decision saw just that kind of relationship in play in the Partial Birth Abortion Act. Um, but I, I do think that there's considerable, a pretty considerable lack of clarity in the, the court's decisions as to which way this should come out, which is why, thankfully, the court's taking the case now. Great. Okay, we well, plunged right into the undue burden standard, but I, I should just uh, review the fact that there are two provisions that are being challenged here. The first requires all abortion clinics to comply with standards uh, that are set for ambulatory surgical centers, which is a higher standard than uh, than had prevailed before. And the second requirement requires a physician performing an abortion to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the location where an abortion is performed. Okay, with those two things in mind, Clark, I do want to hone in on this question of what the right constitutional answer is. I'm going to read from the Casey case. 
it says, a finding of an undue burden is a shorthand for the conclusion that a state regulation has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. And much of the discussion at the court yesterday focused on whether or not there really were health benefits to having women take pills or have procedures in surgical centers. Justices Ginsburg, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer questioned Texas about the evidence of this health benefits, especially for pills where there's no surgery involved. Um, Can you uh, give us your sense about whether or not Texas uh, acted appropriately or constitutionally when it said that there were health benefits to these two regulations? Well, first of all, there was uh, testimony before the state legislature uh, about the uh, important uh, importance of ambulatory surgical standards that abortion clinics not be exempted as they have been for 43 years, but that they obey the same surgical standards as other ambulatory uh, centers. And secondly, that there uh, there is testimony that there is an absolute medical logic and grounding in requiring admitting privileges for any performing surgeon, uh, especially in a day of electronic health records, so that there is continuity of medical data, continuity of care, continuity of information between the performing surgeon and the receiving doctor um, when a patient suffers complications. And this is especially important in light of the unique medical practice of abortion clinics that they invariably tell patients as a matter of policy, if you have any complications, don't come back here. Go to the nearest ER. They anticipate a, that, that, that the patient is not going to come back to the clinic. Um, and so there has to be continuity of care. Uh, and when it comes to chemical complications, I mean chemical abortions, um, there have been medical studies that have shown Ninamakis uh, from 2007, 8, or 9, I think. I can get you that, but showing that there is a greater uh, rate of complications from chemical abortions than from surgical abortions because chemical abortions induce a hemorrhage to cause the abortion, and therefore there's higher risk of hemorrhage. Thank you for that. Um, Mary, tell us about your thoughts about whether or not you think that these laws do in fact have health benefits. Justice Anthony Kennedy questioned Texas about whether the effect of the law might be to have more women get surgical abortions rather than medical abortions, uh, noting that medical abortions are up nationwide but down in Texas. And what's the relevance of that line of question for the question of whether there are health benefits to these laws? Sure. I I think that there may be health benefits. So I think how much of the benefit and how much evidence of the benefit does there need to be might be determinative of the outcome. So some of the justices you mentioned, like Justices Breyer, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg, were concerned, I think, in part about some of the how directly any of these benefits could be proven. So, for example, if it's true that there's a greater complication rate for chemically induced abortions, what's to make us believe that women will actually be in ambulatory surgical centers at the time those complications arise? Or, um, as Justice Kennedy, I think, was concerned, uh, there was a worry that women would delay having abortions because of the restrictions and would, in fact, come to a point where surgical abortions were the only remaining option and surgical abortions may be uh, more dangerous. So there's certainly 
if there needs to be a lot of proof or convincing proof or even meaningful proof of the health benefit, then Texas might be in trouble. If, by contrast, as Clark was saying, uh, the court should give a lot of deference to the legislature's own views of what a health benefit is and when it's necessary, then the statute might look a lot more constitutional. Um, thanks. That's very helpful. Clark, one, one more beat about what uh, the Supreme Court case law says about the level of deference to be given to legislatures in evaluating health benefits. Justice Ginsburg said yesterday, what's the legitimate interest in protecting their health? What evidence is there that under the prior law that was not sufficiently protective of women's health, as I understand it, this is one of the lowest risk procedures, and she basically suggested that childbirth was much more dangerous. So, so how sh should the Supreme Court uh, evaluate health benefits according to its prior precedents? Well, the court has, uh, again, the wide discretion standard was derived, it was the language in Gonzales, and it was derived from another a number of other cases cited by Justice Kennedy in, in his majority opinion in Gonzales. Um, uh, and uh, so basically he was importing into abortion doctrine uh, the deferential le uh, standard for legislatures when it comes to medical disagreements, um, when, when there is a differing uh, medical opinion. Um, that you, I, I think it's important to realize how very different Gonzalez is from the opinions issued by the Supreme Court during the Blackman majority in the 1970s or 1980s when the court basically deferred to anything that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Medical Association said. So Gonzalez presents a very different standard, and it's much more deferential. But I think Mary was exactly right that it depends upon the extent of the deference and what kind of standards are going to be applied. The courts, since Gonzalez, have looked for a rational basis and um, there is certainly a rational basis here. Um, but um, proving the actual, you know, proving that a law will actually exactly have the anticipated effect that the legislature wants is not rational basis, and it's not the deference that have been, has been given to legislatures in areas of medical uncertainty in the past. So it'll be interesting to see where the court comes out on this. But I think there's also, there's this, uh, well, I, I also point out that in my book, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe vs. Wade, I point out that the notion that abortion is safer than childbirth has never been a fact, never been based on reliable data, wasn't in 73, and isn't today. So that 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 myth needs to be disposed of. But I think there's also an a unfortunate correlation in this in this case that HB2 is directly related to clinics closing in Texas, and that hasn't been demonstrated. There's, a, For example, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, Thursday, page 813, about the medical markets and abortion markets and how um, there should be some question about whether there's other, uh, other f economic and health care factors that are maybe resulting in consolidation in Texas. Great. So we're, we've helpfully uh, had some agreement on the question that the Supreme Court is a bit unclear about the level of deference to be accorded to medical, to, to states in making these medical judgments. And then Clark has turned to a second question, which 
occupied much of the justices' attention in the oral arguments yesterday, and that's whether there's adequate proof in the record that the clinics actually closed because of the admitting privileges and the requirements of the law as opposed to other reasons. Justice Kennedy Alito and Chief Justice Roberts questioned both lawyers closely on that question and wondered whether the clinics had closed because of financial constraints. The plaintiff's main evidence seemed to be timing. They said that 20 clinics closed shortly after the laws went into effect. Um, and there was only specific evidence in the record as to why 12 of those clinics closed. Mary, uh, you're welcome to respond to Clark on the medical uh, claim about whether abortion is safer than childbirth, but then turn to this central question before the court yesterday. What Was there adequate proof that the clinics closed because of this Texas law or for other reasons? Sure. I mean, I, I'm not going to take on the childbirth question. I'm not beyond my bailiwick. Uh, I, I think that there was concern among some of the justices that it, it, abortion was singled out. In other words, even though the standards that are applied to abortion clinics were the same, the ambu- standard ambulatory surgical center guidelines, uh, there were no exemptions available to abortion clinics that were available to other um, ambulatory surgical centers. So they weren't eligible for waivers. Clinics that had already been operating and didn't have any health problems weren't grandfathered in. And so I think several of the justices were bringing up other procedures like liposuction or colonoscopies that might not be as controversial as the childbirth abortion distinction. So again, uh, if there has to be actual proof that abortion is more dangerous than any other procedure or many of the other procedures performed in ambulatory surgical centers, I think Texas will um, have a problem. Uh, as for whether there's enough evidence in the record, I think there was a lot of concern among many of the justices that the record was a little thin. So one of the outcomes we might see in Whole Women's Health is, is a remand for a fuller record, although I think there was pretty good evidence that the clinics closed in in large part, or at least many of them did in large part because of the provision. Um, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence uh, was that when the ambulatory surgical center provision was stayed by the court uh, by a 5-4 vote, um, many of the clinics that had closed or were going to have to close because of that provision reopened. So it's certainly possible that the market for abortions contributed to the climate for care in Texas, generally speaking, but I think it seems a little implausible to conclude that that quick of a turnaround with those clinics affected by the ambulatory surgical center provision would be attributable uh, to anything else. Uh, Let's talk uh, more about that access question. Um, Justices Ginsburg and Kagan questioned Texas's counsel about access to clinics. The effect of the law, they said, made it Uh, so that three-quarters of a million women lived more than 200 miles from a clinic. They questioned Texas' claim that clinics in New Mexico should count as alternatives for these women. Clark, uh, give us a sense of the back and forth about access to abortion and how precisely the law affected women's access in Texas. Well, um, to my mind, yesterday's argument was the most complicated and intense oral argument in an abortion case than I've ever seen, and my first one was uh, in 1985 in the Thornburg case, Hmm. and uh, um, in part because of all the questions about clinics and numbers and statistics um, and uh, the different markets and and so on and so forth. It was a quite intense and complicated argument, but it, it... I uh, I mean, if the Supreme Court 
if at the Supreme Court you discuss questions of law and legal standards, um, and if they were, um, if they had questions about the facts, then uh, I was wondering yesterday, uh, doesn't don't the plaintiffs have the burden of proof? And if they couldn't uh, bring together the facts, uh, despite two cases, uh, don't doesn't the legal standard mean they lose? Um, but there was. There was a, it was unclear about the whole question of access, but one of the questions swirling around this case is relative safety versus access. Um, as uh, Justice Kennedy has said in his Stenberg dissent, and his, I think it was his uh, in Casey, and perhaps in his majority opinion in Gonzalez, there isn't a right to an unsafe abortion. And um, so substandard conditions and substandard providers uh, are, are, are exactly in the state's uh, legislature's wheelhouse, and they, uh, they have to be concerned about that, and they have to be concerned about medical standards, both in, on conditions and providers. Um, uh, it's striking, Clark, that you say, having watched all these arguments, that this was the most intense. And it was uh, indeed. And I, I want listeners to read the transcript in the oral argument because uh, you'll learn a lot from it and can make up your own mind. Uh, Mary, uh, after a lot of back and forth about whether or not uh, there was solid evidence that the Texas law was the cause for the sudden closing of half of all the abortion clinics, uh, Justice Kennedy raised a possibility that may, in fact, decide the case. Uh, the question was, what's the uh, not the reason for the closures, but it turned to a question of the capacity of the remaining clinics to handle the tens of thousands of abortion that Texas women seek every year. And Justice Kennedy uh, raised the possibility, as Lyle Dennison has reported, that the case be sent back to the lower courts to let lawyers put in evidence about this question of capacity. Tell us about Justice Kennedy's uh, proposed uh, solution, and uh, what do you think of it? Sure. So the, the, in the briefs, the arguments about whether this had a burdensome effect were twofold. So Texas took the position that not all of the clinics would close. So several um, in several major urban centers, there were clinics that already complied or could comply with ambulatory surgical center guidelines. And so Texas took the position that most women lived relatively close to one of these ambulatory surgical centers. And so at most, they would face a delay or additional costs in order to get an abortion. But that wasn't enough to create an undue burden. Uh, the clinics, by contrast, maintained that if uh, the law went into effect, the remaining clinics, that is the ones that wouldn't be forced to close, would be beyond their capacity. And that women would face very long waits, up to three weeks or more. And for many women, that would be the same result as if abortion had been outlawed altogether. Um, Kennedy, I think, was uncertain about exactly how this capacity question would play out in a variety of ways. So he wondered if more time were allowed, would the remaining clinics be able to kind of ramp up to compensate for the loss of the other clinics? Would it be possible that other providers or ambulatory surgical centers would come into the market to take advantage of this new demand? Uh, and so all of these seem to be fact-based questions that left, uh, at least seem to leave Justice Kennedy convinced not that the plaintiffs have failed to meet their burden, but just that the record wasn't adequate enough to draw a conclusion at all about whether this was an undue burden created by this law or not. Um, and I, I think that for a couple of reasons, that might be a kind of appealing outcome to the court, given that if Kennedy does think that the law is constitutional in whole or in part, we'll have a 4-4 decision 
on a close, divisive question in an election year, um, a remand obviously would avoid that. Uh, Clark, what do you think of Justice Kennedy's uh, proposed uh, solution? Other justices were interested in it as well. Chief Justice Robert asked Texas what evidence it would give to rebut the plaintiff's claim about the impossibility of making up for the capacity of the closed clinics and to rebut the plaintiff's claim that 20 clinics closed because of, of the Texas law. Uh, so um, uh, would Justice Kennedy's uh, proposed solution uh, be a good idea or not? Well, uh uh, I uh, I don't think that, that the court should remand. Uh, I would assume that it would be a four. Uh, well, I wouldn't assume it would be a four-four split. In fact, the question I was going to ask you, Jeff and you, Mary, is what you think the the chances are of a affirmance by an equally divided court uh, versus a remand. Uh, when I stepped out of the court yesterday, I uh, I wasn't sure uh, what the greater uh, likelihood would be, uh, but. But I, I mean, Justice Kennedy raised the question of remand, um, but he, but um, he did not press it energetically. And the, the the related question is, in fact, there were two suits filed here, and uh, the question is uh, whether race judicata um, actually uh, eclipses uh, some of the facial challenges. To tell our listeners what race, what, what, what race judicata is. Race judicata, well, uh, you know, in layman's terms, it's uh, you don't get two bites of the apple to bring two claim, I mean, the same claim twice. Um, but the question was well, what, whether whether there would be new, uh, new, uh, whether there would be material evidence, and whether the, there would be newly developed evidence, uh, material and newly developed, uh, is as I understand it, the standard for for bringing a second claim and. Uh, it was it was difficult for the uh, attorney for the plaintiffs and petitioners to state what that would be. Um, so uh, that seems to merge with the question of remand. If you can't bring uh, material and newly developed evidence to sustain a second claim, uh, what's going to happen with what would happen with remand, and what would be the point of remand? Um, but the um, you know the the. You, we're, we're focusing on Texas, and there's allegations of clinics closing and what the causes are. But it's also important to understand that the abortion rate has plummeted, and abortion numbers have plummeted in the last 15 years or so. So is this a nationwide trend that Texas is just one part of, or is there something different going on in Texas? Very Interesting. Uh, you asked me a question, and I, luckily I don't have to answer it because I'm the moderator, and that's the pleasure of uh, <laughs> moderating these nonpartisan podcasts. I have no opinions at all. Uh, someone once, uh, Sumner Wells, a diplomat, once described himself as a pencil with ears, and that's all I am on this podcast. But Mary, you, you, you can definitely answer Clark's question about whether you think it's more likely that there will be a remand or affirmance by an equally divided court, and also address his interesting question about what further material evidence might be developed on remand that could help uh, inform the court? Sure. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to speculate about what the court's going to do either. I, I think there, it's possible that they'll reverse in part two. I think that at times Justice Kennedy was skeptical uh, that the undue burden test didn't require any consideration of the, the fit between the means and ends of the law. It was, it, was an, it was a question, but I think an important question. I think a remand is possible too. I think even... Uh, Justices Alito and Roberts were dissatisfied with the record. Um, I think the court saying that the claims were precluded is possible as well. So I, I really, 
I think a lot of a lot of commentators I've read were much more certain about the outcome after yesterday than I am. So I don't really want to venture a guess. Uh, Sorry, I'm just going to jump in. What would it mean to say that the claims are precluded? Well, uh, that, that's the arrest judicata idea. Arrest judicata idea that uh, that, in other words, that the clinics had already had a shot at this and had failed in the lower court and can't come back now. That they didn't have enough evidence distinguishing the 2014 claim that eventually made its way to the Supreme Court and the original 2013 suit that wasn't successful. Uh, I think that would be, if the court is interested in avoiding a 4-4 split, that would be another way of doing it without getting really deeply into the merits of the case. The other, uh, if I might add, the other interesting factor is uh, the availability of an as-applied challenge, which Justice Kennedy pressed in his a majority opinion in Gonzales in 2007. He said facial challenges should be discouraged, and uh, people, uh, plaintiffs always have the ability to bring in as applied challenge. So, for example, yesterday's question about West Texas, that uh, the, the apparently is no uh, clinic, open clinic in uh, a large swath of West Texas. Well, what about an as applied challenge with respect to the clinic that may have existed in West Texas? Texas or clinics and may have closed. Um, uh, it's open to the plaintiffs to bring an as-applied challenge. So just to, again, refresh our listeners, a, a facial challenge challenges the entire law. An as-applied challenge says that in this particular area of Texas, the law imposes an undue burden. Uh, Mary, what, what do you think of that? I, I think that would be an option, but I think there was plenty of evidence in the record that this many clinics closing and the remaining clinics having such a limited capacity was burdensome by itself. I don't think a remand, strictly speaking, was necessary to reach that conclusion. Um, And I think that much as it would be very, very difficult for supporters of the law to prove that it actually protected women's health, it's very difficult for those challenging the law to have a lot more convincing proof of why clinics closed. I think several of the justices raised the possibility one of the things that could be developed on remand would be more testimony about the circumstances of individual clinics. Uh, the the petitioners, uh, the clinics challenging the law, um, seem at the moment to be primarily relying on statistical evidence, the kind of big picture of what's going on in Texas, and didn't necessarily have as much information about what was going on in individual clinics. That would be relevant to an as-applied challenge because those individual clinics um, could then raise those challenges, but it would also speak to the effect of the law, I think, in much greater detail. So um, Justice Alito mentioned that as something that would have been good to know, and I think that's the kind of evidence that could emerge on remand. Also, given that you know remand would take a long time, uh, the kinds of questions that Justice Kennedy had about capacity might be better answered, too, because at the moment the court is really just left to speculate about whether the remaining clinics will be able to meet the needs of the women seeking abortion in Texas, whether other clinics will open. I mean, no one really has any idea at this point. So the court would just be taking an educated guess. So in order to avoid a remand, um, if capacity does matter to the court, they would really just have to be taking a shot in the dark and hoping that that was good enough. You know, we jumped right into the constitutional arguments appropriately because that's our job on this podcast. But Clark, you were in the courtroom yesterday. I have to ask the Oprah question. You know, what was the atmosphere? You said it was the most intense abortion case you've seen. Give us a little bit more of the atmospherics uh, in the courtroom. 
Well, uh, the questioning was hot and intense. Uh, it, it started with uh, the center for, I mean, the attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights uh, describing the opening issue, but then Justice Ginsburg jumped in very quickly with the first question of the day about race judicata, and again, whether uh, whether that was a procedural issue that could uh, short circuit the case. And uh, um, and I thought the that the attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights had a difficult time and then was rescued by the solicitor, United States Solicitor General, uh, who came in and uh, deftly summarized the burden uh, as he thought it existed on the clinics and um, had a, 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 a good um, answer to a lot of questions and ended, I thought, with a sentence that was aimed for Justice Kennedy, which, in his opinion, if uh, if these if these uh, burdens um, don't uh, justify invalidation of the law, then the quote-unquote careful balance struck in Casey will mean nothing at all. And I thought that was a closing line that was specifically addressed to Justice Kennedy. But then, uh, of course, uh, and, and, and it was so intense, uh, I would also say that it was so intense that before the Center for Reproductive Rights Attorney ended, um, I think it was Justice Ginsburg had asked Chief Justice uh, Roberts to give her an additional eight minutes or so. Um, and uh, so the argument ended, uh, I mean, went about an hour, 20 or 30, even though it was originally supposed to only go 60. Uh, but then Scott Keller, the Solicitor General for Texas, started, and he was immediately pummeled with questions and uh, had a, he was very poised and questions were invariably clear and concise, but um, he was pummeled with questions from beginning to end. It was, it was very intense. Thank you for that vivid uh, description. Uh, Marius Clark says the intensity of the argument is, is clear from the transcript itself, and uh, Mr. Keller, uh, the lawyer for Texas, was indeed pummeled, especially by Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg. Uh, Justice Kagan just had a lot of statistics. She said, uh, Mr. Keller, the statistics I gleaned from the record were that 900,000 women live further than 150 miles from a provider, 750,000, that's three quarters of a million, further than 200 miles. That's compared to 2012, where fewer than 100,000 lived 150 miles and only 10,000 lived more than 200 miles away. She then summarized these numbers. So we're going from like 10,000 to three quarters of a million living more than 200 miles away. What was your impression of the statistical evidence and the intensity with which the justices were scrutinizing it? Well, I think that there was uh, underlying a lot of the statistical evidence and the fights about it was, again, this disagreement about what the Constitution actually requires. And I think Justice Kagan's concern was the sort of real-world impact of this law on women seeking abortion in Texas, because on its face, there's absolutely nothing wrong with requiring abortion clinics to meet the highest possible standard. At one point, Justice Kagan was asking about whether all clinics could be required to meet the standards at Mass General Hospital or, you know, the best hospital in the world. That seems like a perfectly good idea. But the concern is that if in in real world terms, that means that women can't get abortions anymore or that women, uh, particularly poor women, have a much harder time accessing abortion than they did before. That should matter. Um, In other words, we should get beyond kind of formalism and things that are visible at the surface. And I think 
And the Texas would argue that that's not really as necessary, especially when it comes to the purpose of the law, that legislators are given a lot of deference when there's uncertainty. And so the intensity of discussion of things like statistics that might seem kind of puzzling to listeners, maybe a little dry, is because the statistics and how seriously we take them or how much importance we attach to them really speaks to the constitutional question and how much abortion rights are going to mean after this case is decided. Um, thank you for that. Clark, let, let's t- step back uh, a bit and talk about that broader constitutional question. We're, we're going to assume that the Casey case remains on the book, even as it's been parsed in subsequent cases. Uh, just channeling Justice Kennedy's understanding of the uh, Constitution as it applies to abortion rights, what's your sense of what he thinks uh, the appropriate test is? Uh, Just to remind our listeners, Justice Kennedy joined uh, a plurality of the court in the Casey case in endorsing this uh, so-called undue burden standard and saying that women do have a right to choose abortion um, before fetal viability, but then in later cases he upheld laws uh, restricting so-called partial birth abortions. So, Clark, describe, in your view, Justice Kennedy's understanding of what kind of abortion restrictions are permissible and which are not under the Constitution. Well, uh, after Casey in 92, there was Stenberg, and he dissented vociferously in the Stenberg case, which struck down the partial birth abortion law of prohibition of Nebraska and 29 other states. And it, uh, I think a number of commentators and former clerks of his have commented that uh, he kind of felt betrayed in Stenberg that uh, the Casey uh, compromise or the Casey balance um, was not applied in Stenberg. And I believe he thinks his majority opinion in Gonzalez versus Carhartt re- re- regained the balance. Uh, uh, reestablish the balance that that what uh, what he thought Casey was supposed to strike. Um, so uh, in Gonzales, uh, I mean many, I mean some lawyers, uh, especially for uh, abortion rights organizations, uh, would like to think that Gonzales was was just a partial birth abortion uh, case and doesn't apply to any other regulations. But uh, Justice Kennedy's majority opinion went off on a number of additional uh, deferential standards for state legislatures in protecting uh, the state interests that go all the way back to Roe versus Wade, which is a state interest in fetal life and a state interest in maternal health and also state interest in maintaining medical standards. And Justice Kennedy has also said that there's no reason why those are the only state interests at stake in the abortion issue. There may be other state interests at stake. So he opened that door as well, but he also said that um, that uh, states should have deference, that facial challenges should be discouraged, and that um, uh, when there's a medical disagreement about the uh, benefits of a law or what the data is, that the states uh, can legislate in those areas of medical medical disagreement, just as they can in other any any other area of the law. So those are all standards that he's adopted. And uh, as, as Mary pointed out, it will be interesting to see whether he uh, applies them in, in this case or decides that they gave the states too much deference. Thank you for that, Clark. Mary, I'm, let me now ask you to channel Justice Kennedy based on your understanding of his jurisprudence. Uh, how do you think he would evaluate 
the substance of the restrictions at issue in this case? So I think it's helpful here to read Casey and Carhartt together. So we know that the one provision of an abortion regulation that the Supreme Court stuck, struck down was the spousal notification provision in Casey. And the court there emphasized that while the certainly it didn't say that married women couldn't get abortions, that the law would have the same effect for a substantial fraction of women because they would be potentially either uh, threatened with domestic violence or actually subjected to domestic violence. Uh, by contrast, uh, when you look at the partial birth abortion statute in Carhartt, uh, a, a couple of distinctions stand out. So Justice Kennedy pointed out that women would still be able to get abortions in other ways using other procedures. In fact, um, dilation and extraction, which was the procedure at issue there, was comparatively not as common in the second trimester um, and beyond. Uh, it was also the case um, in Carhartt and in other parts of Casey, that Kennedy emphasized um, the importance of making sure that a woman's decision is informed. Uh, the restriction that became the most common in the aftermath of Casey was an informed consent restriction or right to no restriction, which spread in many states. Um, it was significant in Carhartt uh, that Kennedy, for, for Kennedy, I think that uh, the type of procedure involved in partial birth abortion might be particularly likely to cause regret for women. Um, so I think that for Kennedy, in part, the balance that Casey struck is one in which it's important to inform women and make sure that they have all the information before they decide to terminate a pregnancy, but also one in which women still retain the ultimate decision to have an abortion. That, after all, was the balance Casey struck. If, if Carhartt and Casey are consistent, it would be incoherent to say that the legislature has complete deference over every aspect of this decision. Then in what way would women have a right to have an abortion at all, and in what way would Casey be a balance rather than just a gutting of Roe? So I think the question in this case for Kennedy will be whether this kind of law is, is calculated to inform women and make sure that they make the best decision for them, or is it instead designed to cut off access in ways that prevent them from making the decision altogether? Interesting. Well, that suggestion um, indicates that the court might look behind the text of the law to its legislative history. Justice Scalia was a famous opponent of looking at legislative history, but now that he is not on the bench, Clark, do you think the court will, in fact, examine the Texas law's purpose? And if so, um, how should they go about doing it? The legislature said its purpose was to raise the standard of care for all abortion patients, but opponents believe the actual purpose was to put roadblocks in the way of women's path to abortion. They cite statements uh, made on social media and elsewhere by Texas politicians praising the law for clothing, closing lots of abortion clinics. Um, will the court examine the actual purpose of the law, and should it? I don't think they'll examine the purpose. Um, even Justice Breyer, in response to Texas Solicitor General Scott Keller, says, I'm not going to question the, the legislative purpose. Um, and uh, that was not pushed by, I mean, that purpose test was not pushed by Justice Kennedy, and he certainly didn't emphasize it in his majority opinion in Gonzales. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, very simply, there, were, uh, there was legislative testimony before the Texas legislature by a state senator, uh, Dr. Uh, Donna Campbell, an ER physician for 23 years, who testified about the medical logic underneath the uh, ambulatory surgical standards and the admitting privileges. And she talked about um, the, the medical logic of all of those and how they're very important for patient care. 
And there was a second testimony by Dr. Mikhail Love about um, uh, the need for these uh, these regulations as well. So, do you, uh, do, do you need to look beyond that? And certainly, 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 if you're going to look at legislative history, you're not going to look at some activist with a pitchfork out in the street or whatever activists want to say. I mean, what an activist says about the purpose of the law may have nothing to do with what the legislature says. So. Uh, if you, even if you're going to look at legislative purpose, which I don't think the court is going to do, uh, do you really want to look beyond what the legislature actually said and heard? Uh, thanks for that. You know, um, Mary, much of the constitutional argument seems to turn on uh, how deferential the court is going to be in taking the legislature's stated purposes uh, to heart. Under what's called rational basis review in ordinary cases, even if there's some conceivable reasonable purpose for law, even if it's not the real purpose it's upheld. But uh, Roe v. Wade imposed, seemed to impose a higher standard of scrutiny for laws affecting women's right to choose. How should the court uh, evaluate these laws, skeptically or extremely deferentially, and, and how do you think it will evaluate them? Well, I think there's always been a kind of weird abortion exceptionalism in the court's jurisprudence. And so I think it's hard to read I mean, Roe, as Clark has written, was sort of a, was a weird decision. And I think Casey, in that sense, is too. I, I, I don't read Casey as being a rational basis decision, either in whole or in part. I don't read it as being a regular fundamental rights decision where the court would scrutinize the law much more carefully. I think that was the balance struck in Casey, that there was a recognition that abortion was unique, uh, both in the sense that there were it was deeply politically divisive, but also in the sense that there were really important constitutional stakes on both sides of the question. So I think very high degree of deference to a legislature is inappropriate if that balance is to be preserved. Um, unsurprisingly, legislators would be able to say or do pretty much anything under that standard, even if they're not sincere, even if the law would be utterly ineffective, that would be okay. And that seems to kind of eviscerate this idea of balance that was central to Casey. Um, I think it's worth saying that it, it wasn't in Casey something like strict judicial scrutiny, which would be more conventional in other fundamental right cases. It was some kind of intermediate standard. But I think that in order to capture what Casey was about, which was balancing these important interests, there has to be some skepticism about what legislators say, or at least some requirement that they show that these laws are going to advance the important interests Casey recognized, and not just obstruct women's access to abortion for no real reason at all. Thank you for that. Um, uh, one uh, more question, and then we'll have uh, closing arguments. Clark, if the court comes up with a four-to-four four tie in this case, it would uphold the Texas law and other laws like it, but it would not create a Supreme Court precedent. Uh, in that case, what would the future of abortion rights look like in the United States, and what is the significance of the Supreme Court vacancy before the country um, does the future of uh, Roe v. Wade, in fact, turn on who fills that seat? Um, well, if the court uh, affirmed by an equally divided court, I think you would see this issue return to the court, the question of medical regulations in the first trimester. And and, and uh, I think before we close, we, we need to understand that how landmark this case was. In 43 years, the Supreme Court has never yet upheld, allowed states to uh, impose health and safety regulations in the first trimester. It has allowed parental notice laws applicable to the first trimester, informed consent laws applicable to the first trimester, 
but has never yet allowed the states to impose health and safety regulations in the first trimester. So this is a, a novel case. Um, but I think this issue will return because there are cases, as you know, in Mississippi. The Louisiana case was actually brought into the oral argument yesterday uh, and from other states, Wisconsin, uh, was before the Seventh Circuit. So this issue will return in 2017 or 2018. Um, as to the vacancy, um, I mean, uh, you know as much as I do about that, but the, the latest uh, I've heard is that the uh, uh, the Oval Office meeting between the President and Senators McConnell and Grassley uh, and Senator Reid, I guess, uh, ended with a rather emphatic uh, position on both sides, and so it looks like there's a logjam. Um, I recently published an article on the Hill about the Senate's constitutional capacity and shared power to simply not consider a replacement for the vacancy uh, before the next election or next inauguration. Um, but, but yes, I think that the 4-4, I mean, the, the possibility of a 4-4 outcome in this case showcases the importance of judicial selection and uh, showcases the uh, delicate balance that the court is on on the abortion issue and the central importance of the next nomination um, for this issue. Uh, thank you uh, so much for that. Uh, Mary, uh, your thoughts about the significance of the next vacancy for the future of Roe versus Wade? Well, I think the significance almost goes without saying. I, I think that uh, Justice Kennedy has been a swing vote on abortion in more than one sense. I mean, he was the author or one of the deciding votes in Casey and the author of Carhartt. Um, so I think that a new Supreme Court justice could either preserve the balance that's been on the court now and confirm Justice Kennedy's spot as the swing vote or could push the court pretty far in either direction on the abortion question. So I think abortion doctrine in the U.S. will likely change in dramatic ways or not, depending pretty much entirely on who the next nominee is. Wonderful. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this extremely informative and illuminating discussion. Clark, your final thoughts about why this case is important and how the Supreme Court may decide it. Well, uh, again, because it's the first uh, case uh since Roe versus Wade to consider allowing uh, uh, states to enact health and safety regulations in the first trimester, it, it's a unique case. I mean, if the court has decided 31, 32, 33 abortion cases since uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, but if you go back and look at the, the types of statutes and the record, you will find one or two, I'm not even sure that many, in which the court has looked at the maternal health question with a real record, um, it has almost never done that in the context of an abortion regulation. So this is also an important case for the whole question of maternal health and the health benefits or the health risks of abortion. Um, uh, but um, I'm still, I'm still not sure that Mary's given me a lot to think about. I'm still not sure whether I came, uh, whether whether at this point, uh, and the court apparently will vote in conference tomorrow in this case, whether we'll see a remand or a affirmance by an equally divided court 4-4. Um, uh, I, I think that may come down to uh, whether uh, Justice Kennedy 
um, applies or um, even even uh, applies his Gonzalez opinion scrupulously, or whether he tilts toward thinking there's too much of a burden on abortion access in Texas. Clark, thank you so much for that. Mary, last word to you. Why is this case important, and how may the court decide it? Well, I think there's been kind of a, a remarkable degree of stability in, in abortion doctrine since Casey, although not in abortion politics for certain. Uh, I think that the stakes of the case are high because in, in real ways it's about whether Casey is going to be transformed or preserved as it is. And that's significant not only to whether abortion clinics in Texas will shutter or stay open, but it's relevant to whether any abortion restriction will be upheld or struck down by a court. Um, so it's important for everyone to know what the future of any abortion regulation will be. And I think this case at least has the potential to answer that question. Um, I think the court should confirm that Casey does in fact require a balance. I think that was essential to the plurality decision. I think that was, I think, really kind of the heart of the logic of it, that the Constitution couldn't and shouldn't underestimate the really important constitutional issues on either side of this question. Um, but I don't think a remand would be a terrible idea either, just because these questions have become so fact-intensive, and it seemed that many on the court were left wanting more information about exactly what this regulation was going to do. Uh, so I think either of those would be appropriate directions for the court to take. Uh, thank you so much for that, and uh, thank you both. Uh, Clark Forsyth and Mary Ziegler for a truly civilized, illuminating, and uh, superb discussion about one of the most hotly contested issues of our constitutional uh, era. Uh, you've both given us a lot to think about, and I'm grateful to you for the for the civility of this discussion. Uh, so, Mary, Clark, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lena Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.